in our house, if someone gets mail out of the mailbox and says, there's a letter for you, which is always an exciting moment. Uh, it's always fun to get a letter. If someone says in your house, hey, we've got a letter for you, what's your first question? I'm okay with you actually saying this. Who's it from? Okay, cool. Yeah, we all do it. Okay, I wasn't sure if that was just me. So who's it from? That's our first question. Who's it from? In verse 1 of Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells the Galatians that he's a messenger from God, that he's an apostle sent from God. And then today in the text, Paul tells the Galatians more that his message is from God. He says, hey, it's, this is from God. So it's almost like getting the letter out of the mailbox and saying, who's it from? Well, this message is from God. It, it matters who the message is from. I mean, if you get a letter in the mail and it's your friend, you're excited. You're like, okay, this is really fun. If you get a letter in the mail and it's just spam, you're like, that's annoying, throw it away. If you get a letter from the IRS, it's scary and you go into hiding. So whatever we, no, you don't do that. You, you, pay, your, you pay your taxes. But whatever we do, whatever the letter is, we receive messages differently depending on who it's from. So the Galatians needed to discern which message to listen to. The message of salvation by grace through faith, which Paul had preached to them, or the message of salvation by works, which a group that we sometimes call the Judaizers were, were teaching. They had to discern which message was from God. And that question should matter to you as well. That, that question is not limited to the scope of the Galatian church in 50 AD. That message and that question has persisted throughout all time. Because the enemy loves to take what is true of the gospel and spin it and say, no, here's, let's add, let's take away, let's make it different. I saw a quote recently that said, the most dangerous thing for Christians is not someone outside of the church saying, no, that's not true. It's someone inside of the church claiming what is not Christianity and putting Jesus' name on it. So we also have to worry, or not worry, but ask this question who is the message from? How should we believe? Listen, our gospel is not man's gospel. When we understand the gospel of Jesus is from God and eternally true and not the invention of man, and it doesn't need changes or updates, then we're going to follow Paul's example here of imitating Christ and holding firm to that gospel. As we look to the text, we're going to be compelled to ask four questions, four other questions here. One of those is, whose approval am I seeking? Whose gospel am I preaching? Whose world am I changing? And whose faith am I encouraging? And we see this. The first two chapters of Galatians are really kind of an autobiography. Paul's just letting you into his world because he wants to gain credibility with the Galatians and talk about how true his gospel is. So here's more of this autobiographical information, and what Paul is teaching should cause us to think critically about ourselves, too, as we think critically about what he says. The Galatians here, as I said, we're falling prey to a false gospel from false teachers, and this book of Galatians in our Bible, it's a letter written to this church, is a letter to believers urging them, reasoning with them to hold true to the gospel of Jesus. And Paul was a master of reasoning. It's one of his strengths in Scripture. Acts 17 actually shows us this. I'll have this on the screen for you. Acts 17, verses 2 through 4. Paul went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on, on three Sabbath days, he re reasoned with them from the Scriptures, 
explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. (laughs) Paul was reasoning with them. He said, you have questions and Christ has given us answers. He, he is the way and the truth. So it's easy. It's not, it's not scary for us to reason with people about our faith. Christians should never be afraid to ask hard questions and reason out our faith. Now, think about this. God invented reason. Sometimes we might get that in the wrong order and believe that reason invented God, but that's not true. God invented reason. So we can use reason, his invention, to, to our advantage. Paul is reasoning with the Galatians here in chapters 1 and 2. He wanted to persuade them as he does in Acts 17. He wanted to persuade them that they should trust him, a messenger of God, rather than the false teachers, a messenger of the flesh. So he introduces himself as an apostle, writing with other trusted Christians. He immediately, in verses 6 through 9, tells them what they've got wrong. He's like, hey, here's the place you need to be correcting. And now in verses 10 through 24, he continues to build the case that he presented them the full and complete and true and unchanging gospel. So let's look with him in verse 10. This is what God's word says, Galatians 1 verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If you look at the context here, coming out of verses 6 through 9, he's correcting. I'm astonished that you would desert the faith so quickly. I'm astonished that you would. He he feels like a disappointed father there. And so he's saying, I know this isn't what you want to hear. This isn't the letter you want to get. This is not what you want in the mail from a friend. (laughs) You want the encouraging letter. You're the best. This is, hey, you're messing up. And this is difficult. And so in verse 10, he he says, look, I, I know this isn't what you wanted, but I'm not seeking your approval. I'm seeking the approval of God. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul insinuates that here the false teachers are seeking the attention and approval of people. That's what the false teachers are preaching is a a man-motivated gospel. But he is, his motivation is only to honor God. He has no interest in their approval. It's not about your approval, Christians in Galatia. It's not about your approval provision, His message was about honor in Christ. So he asks, whose approval am I seeking? Whose approval am I seeking? That's the question of verse 10, which is a pretty great question to ask ourselves with regularity. Whose approval am I seeking? That's a great, right before you make a decision, (laughs) asking that question. You will do what matters most to the person whose approval matters most to you. You will do what matters most to the person whose approval matters most to you. I can tell you, man, if you're in elementary school or middle school or high school, and even in the college, I think the intensity of that is greater. As you get older, you kind of start caring less about what people think, right? That's why we have dad jokes and, like, we make fun of, like, how dads dress, right? Because it's like, okay, we care less now. Like, we've got our family. Like, okay, it's whatever. I don't think that's all true. I'm just saying it exists because... But the younger you are, the more this is true. It's not all unhealthy because we should be searching for the approval of God. 
that should matter so greatly to us that we feel the pressure to honor him, not out of, not out of, um, uh, out of doing a chore for God, but out of joy for him. Like we, it matters because we love when we please him. But in our lives, if we're searching for other people's approval, it will lead us to dishonor God. The question of whose approval matters most is a question of whose servant am I? That's, what, that's the connection Paul makes. Whose servant am I? If you out the facts of the case, this should be a pretty easy answer for you if you're asking whose approval am I seeking. If you look at just the facts, it's easy. Of course, I want to seek the approval of the maker of the universe, of the judge of all humanity, the one who's going to judge your entire life and is preparing for you a place in heaven, Christians. I mean, that's whose approval you should seek. But man, man, we get this wrong a lot. We get this wrong a lot. We get so distracted. We get so blind. Our desire to please God is disrupted by our love of attention and respect and glory and fame and comfort. We end up serving the opinions that can provide us with a hit of momentary approval. It's almost like a a drag from a cigarette. Okay, that was a momentary approval, and I'll take that over future health, over, over future glory with Christ. I want the momentary stuff. But God is very clear on how he feels about sharing our devotion. Isaiah 42, 8 says this. I am the Lord. (laughs) I am the Lord. That is my name. What weight his name carries. I'm the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God doesn't share what's his. Then in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters for he will, for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money in the context of what he was teaching there. You cannot serve God and money. You can't have two masters. No one can serve two masters. So as we ask the question, whose approval am I seeking? Whose servant will I be? You cannot serve two masters. I, I really think this is the most common type of disobedience for Christians, that we believe we can maintain a shared allegiance, that we believe that we can be devoted to Christ and also devoted to other things, to even good things that we can keep our acceptable sins or our secret sins alive. That I'm serving God, mostly, mostly. I'm working on this. It's fine. It's not a big deal. But we do that. We maintain shared allegiances. We keep sins alive. And at the same time, we call ourselves servants of Christ. Look, you, you are either a servant of Christ or a servant of death. You don't get to ride that fence. You don't get to play in between that. You're one or the other. Choose this day who you're going to serve. Who, who will you serve? You are either a servant of Christ or a servant of death, a servant of Christ or a servant of the flesh. So whose approval are you seeking? And I pray that you will answer that honestly. Because sitting between stained glass windows, it's easy to say, yeah, I'm seeking God's approval. But you know your life. Don't lie to yourself. And I hope it is Christ. I hope that is your honest answer and can be, that can stand up underneath the weight of evidence 
Whose approval are you seeking? And that's a question of motivation. Paul was motivated by God's view of him as a servant of God. His message to the Galatians had pure motives because there was nothing selfish, nothing ambitious, nothing easy driving him. He desired what God desires because he wanted God's approval. No one, no one wanting your approval would openly defy you or lie about you. Right, so he's, he's giving this message. You've been lied to, church. You've been told a false gospel. That is not how people would treat their master. That's not how people would treat their king who they love and adore. But because I seek God's approval, I'm not here to lie to you. I'm here to give you what is true. Paul clarifies this motive, and then he continues in verse 11. Look on in verse 11 in the text with me in Galatians. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own, my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. The gospel is offensive. It's something that I've said here several, multiple times. It's something you've probably heard if you've been in church at all. The gospel is offensive. If you're like, well, I don't know what the gospel is. I don't know that it's offensive. Well, we're about to talk about why it's offensive. Central to its message, central to the message of the gospel is that everyone sins. That We look around and everyone has sinned. Everyone is a sinner. And that sin sends you to hell. So central to the message of the gospel is that you are wrong and you deserve eternal punishment. A little bit offensive. I still haven't met a single person who likes to hear that. In fact, I've heard and met and seen many people who would counter our message of everyone's sins with a message of, well, only God can judge me. That's, that's a popular turn in our culture. Well, God has judged you. That's done. He's already, he's already cast judgment on sin. And he says, the wages of sin is death. There's not a question. We've already got the answers. We've already got the key to the test. Like we know. If you believe that living in your sin and rejecting Christ that an escape from that is that only God can judge me, he has. And you should be afraid. Unless, unless there is hope. Unless there is one who, who may, could save you from your sin and provide relief from the punishment that you deserve. Well, I've got good news. <laughs> it's the reason we're gathered here is that one has one has provided rescue from our sin. That even though, yes, all of us have sinned and all of us were headed for hell, it was our choice that here, now, God has made a way. God has made a way, and Jesus is the way. Well, that feels pretty good. But we even know that the way that Jesus provides is a free gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it. But Jesus says, to follow me, you must lay down your life and follow after me. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. That feels hard again. Yeah, your salvation is free, but your obedience is costly. 
the message of the gospel is hard. It is offensive. It's not what people want to hear. It's not a popular message. It's not even a popular view of God. But going back to verse 10, Paul is really saying, if I was preaching and writing and investing my life for man's approval, I wouldn't be doing it like this. This is not the message I would have come up with. He probably would have come up with something, I would have come up with something a little more acceptable, a little more universal. But then in verse 11, he continues this thought, this, this verse 10 thought of, I'm not doing it for man's approval. Paul reminds them that he didn't come up with this message. I'm not doing it for man's approval, but it's not my message to begin with. Like, who am I? Who am I to come up with this message? This is God's message. The gospel wasn't his idea. He didn't manufacture it. So Paul answers this question, whose gospel am I preaching? We'll see that in 11 through 14 here. Whose gospel am I preaching? He was preaching the gospel revealed to him by Jesus Christ. It wasn't a matter of even hearing it from others, like we do from hearing or reading. We hear the gospel from God's word. We hear it from uh, evangelists and, and, and from friends who tell us about who God is and what he's done for us. Paul was preaching the gospel that Jesus directly brought to him. But what about before Christ? What about before Christ came and revealed this gospel? Verses 13 through 14 show you whose gospel Paul originally preached before Jesus. It was a mixture of his own and of his father's. You see that I was so zealous for the traditions of my fathers. That's what his life was about. That's what he was preaching the gospel of. By persecuting Christians, he was holding up the the traditions of his fathers. He was saying, this is the way. And then he wanted his own greatness so much that he he was going with such zeal above and beyond those his own age. He was preaching his own gospel, that I'm this good. I'm worthy. Look how good I am. I I love traditions, and I love excellence, but those things must be servants to God and not vice versa. For the Jews, keeping traditions held a higher priority than pleasing God. In Matthew 15, the scribes and Pharisees were angry that disciples weren't washing their hands according to the law. And Jesus asked them, they asked Jesus about it. Like, why are your disciples not doing what, we, what they're supposed to do? And Jesus asked them in return. His, his answer was a question. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? <laughs> it's pretty on the nose. And then he followed up with that just a couple of verses later. He says, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Tradition, trading traditions for the word of God is a terrible trade. Trading traditions for the commands of God is a terrible trade. The traditions of Paul's fathers were their idols. They took priority over what God desired. Before Christ, Paul's testimony was about himself and his work, his traditions. And the scary thing about that is that Paul thought he was on God's side. He'd been lied to. He thought he was on God's side. He had been trained to think that what he was doing was what God wanted. Church, we need to go ahead and decide. We need to make sure that our testimonies are about God, that our testimonies are not about ourselves. And so you might be asking, well, what is a testimony? That sounds like a church word. It kind of is. It's really like a legal word. It means telling your story, telling the truth, seeing, telling what you have witnessed. And our testimony, the truth about what we have witnessed in our lives is all about Jesus. If our testimony elevates our ability or the work even of another person, then it's a testimony of a false gospel. 
our testimony should point to Christ's goodness and his working out in our lives. Our testimonies must elevate Christ, and that's what Paul did. That's what he did. Look at, look at verses 15 through 17 with me. So he just said, I, I, this is who I used to be, persecuted the church, did it my own way. In verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Every testimony has to have a verses 13 and 14. Every testimony has to have a place before Christ. He had a former life in Judaism. We saw that in Titus 3. He said, this is the, we, were, we were such at one point that we lived in this way. Every testimony has to have a verses 13 and 14, the past. And every testimony, every, every telling of what God has done in our lives to elevate him has to have a verse 15. I love the hope of verse 15. It's, it's really the but of salvation. He says, I was a rebel. I hated God. I wanted my own way. I persecuted those who followed after God. I was faithless and far from God. But, but the Father called me by his grace. Oh, doesn't that melt you a little bit? You feel yourself melting into just the goodness of God right there. That he called us by his grace, his unmerited favor. He revealed his son to me, Paul says. And it was not an accident. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake that Paul found God. Paul was set apart before he was born. While he was in the womb, he was set apart. Do you want to know if your life has purpose? Do you want to know if your life has meaning? Paul's autobiography here isn't something peculiar. This is a part of every one of our testimonies that God has a plan for you. That while you were in the womb, before you were even in the womb, God, God knows and calls you. He was set apart before he was born. The Jews would have believed that they were the set apart people. But here Paul is making clear that what is set apart is following after Jesus. It's the revelation of the Son to them. God has set you apart even before you were born, Christian. There hasn't been one accidental second in your life. Yeah, that's, that's, that's important to grasp, that God has cared for every hair on your head every second of your life. There hasn't been, he, he is not an accidental God. He's not reckless with his creation. He loves us, and he loves us with intentionality. Think about people who maybe came from an unplanned parency, a pregnancy. You might have heard your parents say, we, we didn't, you were an accident, we didn't plan on you. Well, they mean that with, with, with kidding, I'm sure. But I want to say this for sure, you were not an accident. There's, there's no accident in your life. You weren't wanted by your birth parents, you're not an accident. You feel lonely and unwanted and unneeded, sitting in your room by yourself. There's people all around you, but you, you feel still separated and unknown. Your life is not an accident. You're not here by mistake. God has a purpose for you. Like Paul, Christian, you've been set apart and called by God. And if you're not a Christian, God desires to set you apart. He is calling you. 
You're like, well, I don't know, is God calling me? Yes, yes, you're hearing the gospel now. The gospel is God's great call to you. You can be saved right now. If you're not sure, well, I don't know. No, now. The purpose of God in your life is eternal and it is good and it never gets old. And you will still have these moments of, maybe I'm an accident. Maybe there's not purpose. But I, I promise you, those are lies. The confidence we have in Christ is that we can speak truth to lies. And the truth is that God has a plan for you the way he had a plan for Paul. God wants to redeem you. God has a, a purpose, a good purpose for your redemption. And here it is. He has made you to change the world with the gospel. God has made you to change the world with the gospel. The silent question here that Paul answered that we should also ask ourselves is, whose world am I changing? Whose world am I changing? Now, take this in context. <laughs> You're not changing the world by your goodness or your ability or like, your great striving. You have a world-changing commission and message. So the changing the world stuff happens because God is so good <laughs> that he lets us participate in it. So it's not even by ourselves. It's, it's all grace. It's all mercy to us that we might have an opportunity to do what God has set out for us. You have a world-changing gospel that is yours to share. So ask yourself, to whom has God sent me? Whose world am I changing? The question is not if God has called you to share the gospel. The question is where, to whom? Paul makes it so clear. Why did God redeem him? Look at, look at verse 16. God revealed himself to Paul for what purpose? In order for the purpose of so that the Gentiles would hear the gospel. God saved Paul for the sake of saving the Gentiles. I look out across this room and I, I wonder how, how maybe you could fit into that pattern. God saved Daniel for the sake of saving the people he works with. God called, God saved Jake for the sake of saving his family. God saved Gloria for the sake of... So what is your mission field? To whom has God called you? John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Are you wondering? <laughs> Are you wondering if you've been sent? If you have a mission field, you do. Not every mission field looks the same. Maybe God has called you to Wingate University. He put you there as a student or a staff member or a community member. Maybe God has sent you to an elementary school or maybe he sent you into banking or maybe he's, there's, maybe he has, is calling you to coach a, a sports team in, in your community. Maybe he's calling you to move to Boston or San Antonio or to India or the UAE. I wonder if we ever ask ourselves, where has God called me? Are we, accident, are we, are we accidentally in our minds here in Union County? Or are you here with a purpose? 
God has you here for a purpose. But is, is his purpose for you to stay here? I love what Robbie Gallaty said about this. He said, the gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. The gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. The gospel came to Paul because it was heading to the Gentiles. This is all Paul's testimony. This is how Paul is reasoning his credibility as the bearer of the true gospel message. He knew who God had sent him to. He was convinced. Are you convinced God has sent you? I don't think that today you have to be able to answer the question of who has God sent you to. But I think today you have to be asking the question, who is God sending me to? God, who who am I here for the gospel to get to? Are we asking those questions? Are we, are we asking faithfully, God, I, I want to be in the harvest. Ask God, God, who are you sending me to? And realize, say it for yourself, the gospel came to me to go to someone else. Internalize that. The gospel came to me to go to someone else. The gospel didn't come to me to end with me. That's not the gospel. The gospel came to me to go to someone else. You want to know how to change the world? The best way is to make disciples, to follow your commission as a believer. Make disciples who make disciples. Share the gospel and pour your life into new believers. It's not a fast or easy track to world change. We'd like to write the book that everyone reads and now we've got peace. We'd like to be the president who says the right things and now there's no more war. We'd like to be the doctor who cures all the diseases and now we're set. We'd like to do those things. But what God has called us to is this slow, careful discipleship. Are you satisfied with that? Are you satisfied with God's mission for you in your life? There's no replacement for slow discipleship of walking arm in arm with other believers. And you might feel like, okay, Mark, you're telling me I'm sent, you're telling me about discipleship, and you might feel unable or ill-equipped. I can't do it though, Mark. I'm just not ready. Let me me tell you how to know if you're ready. Are you a Christian? Okay, you're ready. (laughs) If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you are able And you are equipped. All you need is a clear understanding of how you're saved. How does the Holy Spirit dwell inside of me? Well, it's it's by grace through faith that uh, we, we learn that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. Clear understanding of how you're saved and your testimony. That's what Paul's giving here. The testimony. Now I'll add that the start, middle, and end of evangelism is prayer. Like prayer, prayer is, is maybe the bubble that just holds all of this within it. It's the umbrella that, that we, we know that it's not by us that we're going. It's not by us that the gospel goes to someone else, but it's by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we, we call on him to do the work, and we're, we're just faithful. If you're not sharing the gospel and you're a Christian, it's not because you can't. It's because you're making excuses. Paul continues his testimony in verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. 
And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. That's like saying, I, I promise you, this is true. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And they glorified God because of me. Verses 18 through 24 all aim to bolster Paul's claim that his message was from God. He says, other than Peter and a little bit of James, he was almost exclusively spending time with the Gentiles. So if you look back at verse 11, he, he's saying, this isn't man's gospel. He didn't receive it from any man in verse 12. So he's making that case. Look, I didn't spend enough time with these guys. I, I had a lot of time where I was preaching the gospel before I got to them. So how are you going to say I got it from these guys? I, I received it right from Christ. This is his gospel. He's been preaching the same consistent gospel the whole time. So he's clarifying nothing's changed. That, in fact, these false teachers proclaiming a work requirement for God to save you, they're the ones who have altered the message. Paul's message hasn't altered. They're the ones doing it. But the Holy Spirit was using Paul all along. In fact, the church was being encouraged by his faithfulness. His message of the gospel was a message that produced fruit, that saw true love and, and dwelling with God. So Paul answers this question here in 18 through 24. Whose faith am I encouraging? Whose faith am I encouraging? And how would you answer this question? Whose faith are you encouraging? What Satan had intended for shame in Paul's life, God is using for good here. He's using for his purpose this is this verses 13 and 14 that were that were look at this terrible past here now in, in at the end of chapter one in verses 23 and 24 they're saying look he used to persecute us and now he's preaching the faith he once tried to destroy this faith and now he's preaching it he's building it can you imagine the point in time when the Christians were asking God why he was allowing all the suffering there were Christians that would have looked around and said God why are you letting these evil men persecute the church and they would have been talking about Paul. They would have looked at him and said, God, why, why aren't you striking him down? Why aren't you defending us? Why aren't you protecting us? Why wasn't God delivering Christians like Stephen, who is dying for the gospel at the hands of men like Paul? Because God was preparing to redeem the worst of sinners. Because God had a plan for Paul's life. Because those same people who were mourning the death of believers would someday be rejoicing over the salvation of the man who caused so much pain and heartache. He, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. In service to his flesh, Paul was a killer. In service to your flesh, you are a killer. That's harsh, right? That doesn't feel good. Maybe that's too harsh. I don't think it's too harsh. In service to your flesh, you are a killer because the false gospel of your flesh, the false gospel you will preach in service to your flesh will, will be deceptive and deceive people all day long. And it will lead to hatred. It will not lead to love. That's what Paul was. But in service to Christ, Paul was an encourager. And that, that contradiction of what we do in service to the flesh versus in service to Christ is a true contradiction in all of us. God has taken us from our former lives and has made us new. And he calls us to be encouragers. At 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And one of the greatest ways to encourage one another is to share the gospel and to be about making disciples, to be about your father's business. 
Yeah, write those kind letters that share encouragement with others. Do that. Tell, be quick with encouragement face-to-face. But let's encourage each other with our good works as well. Let's encourage each other with our willingness to share the gospel as well. I mean, I, there's nothing that encourages me more than hearing someone who's sharing the gospel with people. I love, I love for people to come and be like, Mark, let me tell you about this thing that happened this week where they're talking about who they've given the hope of Christ to. Whether it's rejected or received, their faithfulness is so encouraging. We were all once filled with hatred and deceit, and in Christ, he is healing us and drawing us to goodness and holiness. A key sign that that the Spirit is filling us is our encouragement of others. So Galatians 1.24 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because of, what, because of how it says, what it talks about as this encouragement. That this encouragement wasn't a self-bloating. Like it wasn't like, ah, we're the Galatians and we're doing good. Or we're the church and look how awesome we are. But what was the encouragement? What was, how did the encouragement play out? They glorified God because of me. That's, that's Christian encouragement. That the words we speak to others would lead them to glorify God because of us. Why should God, why should God give such grace to allow us to be vessels for others to praise him? That he gives us a way to point others to him. I, I, want, I want to look on my life and I want you to look on your life someday and for people to say, they I glorify God because of them. That we might be able to look at our lives and say, people glorify God because of me. I think there are some believers who could more accurately say, some curse God because of me. Because, because we aren't following Jesus well. We're acting like the Pharisees. Or even worse, holding people up to human standards rather than God's. I mean, God, God is full of mercy. James 5, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And yet, sometimes we come in with these high standards. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They were coming in and saying, here's standards that Christ doesn't give you, but we need from you for your salvation. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. We should be full of compassion and mercy. We should be sharing this gospel of mercy with the world. It doesn't mean we can just claim Christ and live in slavery to sin. It means that God doesn't require us to achieve or gain in any amount of goodness before he is willing to save us. He doesn't need us to meet a certain level of good before he's willing to come in and scoop us up and save us and say, I love you. The change of the Christian life comes after you're saved. It comes as obedience once you're filled with the Holy Spirit. If you aren't a Christian, then here's my plea. It's a simple one. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Just as you are, call to him for your salvation. You might be in your verses 13 and 14 right now. We're stumbling about trying to find your purpose and meaning, hurting others along the way. But God desires for your verse 15. <laughs> but God, turn to Jesus today. If you're a Christian, I want to ask you, here's my plea, know whose approval you're seeking. Know whose gospel you're preaching. Know whose world you're changing. And know whose faith you're encouraging. Make your life all about Jesus so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's my hope for you today, Christians. As we take the next few minutes now to take communion together, Micah is going to come up and lead us in that time. But I'm going to pray for us before we take communion together. If, if on the way in you didn't grab a, a cup that has the wafer in it as well, they're in the lobby. Um, at some point as I'm praying or after I'm done praying, um, while, while Micah's beginning, feel free to go out and grab one. It won't be awkward if you need to. But I want to pray for us together that in this time of communion that these questions about whose approval we're seeking, about whose gospel we're preaching, these are questions of do, what, who is our love for? What are we loving? Are we loving ourselves? Are we loving God? Is there sin in my life that's drawing me away from Christ? And that's one of the great things about communion is that it causes this introspection. It should. We shouldn't take communion lightly. And I'm, I'm going to get ahead of Micah, so I'm sorry. But let's pray together now that we, would, that we would take this time and take it with somber celebration. Father, we're so grateful for your body and your blood. We're so grateful that we can join together to study your word and then to celebrate what you've done for us, that we have salvation in you. We have this hope, not just for today, but for eternity. God, we're so grateful. Thank you for what you've shown us in Galatians today, that you can take broken people and make us uh, a part of participating in your work of redeeming the world. And we're grateful, God, that your gospel is not from men that can be changed and altered as the as the winds change, but God, you have given us a gospel that is true yesterday, today, and forever. God, we love you. We praise you for this. We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen.